With tender affection, they took the body of their loving Savior, treated with all solemnness and affection, laid it into a beautiful tomb which had been donated. But it wasn't to stay there long, thanks be to God. So we have the great statement when the women came to continue their mourning and their regrets of the dear Savior. We have this beautiful statement, do we not? Matthew 28, 6, He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. And then there was a great urgency to go forth and declare this wonderful thing. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. Behold, he's going before you into Galilee, and you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with great joy and amazement at this great development. Jesus told them about this, but when the actuality occurs, oftentimes we didn't realize the meaning of words. And now Jesus said he can be with us always, even unto the end of the age. We're to go forth in his name because of the resurrection and so our precious Savior was glorified and is to be the judge of all mankind. As we read in John chapter 5, uh, 22 and 23. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, nor that all may honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father, who sent him. And so there is declared the great invitation for all to come to salvation. And of course, if this is going to happen, there has to be a rethinking of our position, does it not? So we read in Acts 17.30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all everywhere should repent. And this is a concept of a present tense here, that they should think over things, not have one single idea of repentance, not to do, just have some kind of a climax, but have such a change of mind that they're persuaded to continue in this way. And now we have a very solemn declaration that Jesus is now going to become the judge of all mankind. And uh, he's going to judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he's appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Probably the greatest attendance of church during the year is Easter. And this is very, very sad because many, many people who think of God and Jesus on Easter uh, do not think of him during the year nor consider him in their relationships. And the fact of Easter that they're celebrating is the guarantee of their judgment. Isn't this a solemn thing to think about? And so our precious Savior has finished his work, and now no more sorrow will be his. 
we should look at Philippians chapter 2, this lovely summary of the humiliations of Jesus and now the exaltation of Jesus. Read in verse 9, Therefore also God hath highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we want to take our mention of characteristics that we said uh, would appear to be necessary if God is going to solve these great problems. And we want to see whether these, whether the sacred atonement did fulfill some of these solemn characteristics that we said had to exist. The first concept we had, that sin is an unlovely thing in the highest order, and that if it's going to be solved, it has to be solved by something that is exceedingly unlovely, or filled with awe, or filled with humiliation, a drawing down of mankind from their proud rebellion against God. And so we abundantly see that this was indeed the case. Uh, we say then that Christ's death was an exceedingly unlovely and awesome event of the highest order. It's probably the darkest moment in world history. And remember, too, that there were the great multitudes who traveled to this great annual event of the Day of Atonement, and they would report this throughout the world. So we have it revealed in Hebrews 9, for example, that there's no nice way to worship God because of the awfulness of our rebellion against God. God has prescribed that there must be a serious and a solemn way of worshiping God. We have this summarized, don't we, in Hebrews 9, 18 to 22. Uh, we know that we look at the tabernacle and the temple and the different uh, prescriptions that God had given uh, for conducting the worship. Uh, there was always this solemnness, this distastefulness, this humiliation of the necessity of an animal sacrifice. And so you have in verse 22, and according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness. So here was the background, as we've said, into which Jesus came. And the whole spectacle was filled with emotional pressures and impressions, were they not? Luke gives us uh, quite a few remarks upon this. We only look at one here. We have in the 23rd of Luke uh, these descriptions. And it seems like people ran out of words to describe the solemnness of the occasion. And so we read in verse uh, 48, And all the multitude who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. There was nothing you could say as to the solemn impressions that had been made. So they beat their breasts and looked at each other with solemnness and with a deep concern. Uh, wondering what all of this uh, would mean. <coughs> there was a special hatred manifested, was there not? And Pilate couldn't understand why they should hate Jesus uh, like they did. And uh, we have them, when Pilate tries to uh, excuse and release Jesus, uh, there is this violent hatred 
Jesus said they would hate him because he would testify of it that the world is on the wrong course of life. They didn't need a little improvement. They needed a complete reversal of life. He went everywhere declaring. And so we read here in the 12th chapter of uh, John 19. And here we have Pilate made efforts to release him, but the Jews cried out saying, if you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. This is the only thing they could find against Jesus, wasn't it? They said, thou being a man, makest thyself God. They understood his claims. Can we imagine on top of everything else, here was the darkness that came over the scene for three hours. And here, the impression, this all began with a manifestation of temper, did it not? Throwing their arms in the air, throwing dust in the air. All the tempers of manifesting, getting rid of him, the hatred. He exposed us, he bothered us. We can't tolerate him anymore. And can't you see how God is going to solemnize the whole thing? And, and the whole scene is going to end up with beating their breasts in utter amazement as to what happened. So God adjusts the, the light too and, and brings a great cloud uh, to darken the whole scene and to bring about this impression, this situation. There was a very strange agony manifested in the, in the face of the Savior, was there not? And so you have the soldiers who often had to do such things as this. And uh, they were so astonished at the things that they saw as they looked up into his countenance, uh, as he declined the vinegar and so on. He didn't want anything to deaden his, senses, his sensitivity because he was there to, to taste the awfulness of the sin of the world upon his sacred heart. And uh, they looked at him and saw the different manifestations. And what could they say except we read in Mark 15:39? When the centurion who was standing right in front of him, looking up in amazement, can't we see him? He saw the way he breathed his last and said, truly, this man was the Son of God. He didn't blaspheme by his last words like was common. He didn't have hatred toward anyone. There was the lamb-like suffering that came from his countenance. And the intensity of this suffering, he'd never seen anything like this before. Here was not a simmering out of life, as it were. Here was a great final something where Jesus identified himself in a great climax. He knew this would happen when he did this. And so he kind of restrained his experiences uh, until this final moment. And then he allowed his pure, beautiful mind uh, and his lovely personality that had never been darkened with guilt. Then he allowed himself to make a total involvement with the sin of the world. And this brought such suffering, such agony, these exclamations, the loud voice, and all of this. And yet there was a remarkable difference in this suffering. And so here we see they are amazed at what they are observing. And they, they can only say, my, we, we never saw anything like this. Uh, there must be an attachment with God in this man uh, to suffer like this. So the soldiers were moved with great concern, began to make vows, and with great humility recognized this. Here's a thief that also was blaspheming Jesus. But as he realized that here was a different nature of a criminal next to him, here was a suffering of a heart he felt. And uh, he began to be melted even as he realized and no doubt heard some of the words because here was a man that said, 
Father, forgive them. He never heard of anyone wanting to forgive anybody under things like this. And so his heart was melted down and moved. And he turns and rebukes his fellow thief there and uh, says, Master, remember me when you come in your kingdom, won't you? And here Jesus forgives him in this great moment and said, Today you're going to be rich. You're going to be with me today in my kingdom. Think of the riches bestowed upon this person who's willing to humble himself and recognize the serenity. Then probably the most devastating thing that ever could happen to the religious leaders is what happened to the Holy of Holies. You remember the different temple area and the, the sacred part of the temple had two compartments to it. It had the Holy of Holies into which the high priest alone could go. And he could only do this once a year. Then there was the holy place. And between the holy place and the holy of holies, you remember, there was this veil. And nobody saw inside this veil except the high priest. And now when Jesus had completed his atonement, the veil of the temple is torn. And the holy holy is exposed. This is a remarkable change as we've indicated. God is no longer going to talk to the world through any building. This is what he did in time past. He, the, the tabernacle was constructed in the wilderness as the area in which God could be recognized and, and could be contacted and God's direction could be given. Then when the different temples were built, these were the places where God communicated his will and people felt a sanctifying influence as they went into the temple. But now this was all going to end and God is not going to talk to the world through, through buildings anymore. He's going to talk to personalities, and we have uh, read that beautiful thing which we're all so beautifully aware of, that now we are temples. Rather than having one temple now, God wants temples throughout the world uh, through whom he can manifest himself to the world, and people can come to uh, these spiritual temples uh, endued by the Holy Spirit and find directives and solution to their life and their, their forgiveness and so on. So this must have been an awful disturbance uh, to the official leadership here. And in addition to all of this, here were earthquakes shaking the whole scene. And, and just can, can we just form some impression as to the awe and the nature of fear that settled down? And some souls came back to life. Uh, these must have been recently died saints because the principle would be that they would have to be recognized. And so here they knew that they had passed away, and here they come back to life. They were restored to human life, not to their resurrection bodies, of course. And so they lived for a period of time then, again, in a human body. Uh, to the other amazement, can we just conceive of the impact and the awe of such a scene as this? Surely God is making a permanent impression uh, in the whole world, isn't he, of the great evaluation and the dreadful view of sin that is true when facts are faced. There was an unthinkable dignity, wasn't there, about our precious Savior. He claimed to come down from heaven. No one ever had spoken like this before. And Jesus said, I came down from above. We have this in John chapter 6, do we not? Making this great declaration. No one had ever talked like this before. I have come down from heaven, he said, not to do my own will, but the will who him who sent me, these great profound claims. Who would dare to pick up the scroll of Isaiah and read in the synagogue 
like Jesus did in the fourth chapter of Luke and uh, read from Isaiah 61 and then close the book and dare to say, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And of course they wouldn't tolerate any such claims as this. Why, we knew him. He's from, a, he's from our town here. And how does he dare make any claims like this? They would have to admit they never knew anything wrong about anything he did. They'd have to admit that, that here was a serene a personality been among them, but they were not willing to accept his claims. So they rushed him out to throw him down over the brink of the hill. But again, God's power froze their activity, and they just couldn't do what they planned to do. Truly here was a great adventure, was it not? And the Holy Spirit came upon him in the anointing when he was baptized and the marvelous manifestation of the dove coming down and settling over him. So here's the anointing of the Holy Spirit uh, providing him the energy and directive for his life. And we have read that beautiful passage, Acts 10, 38, how he went about doing good. Oh, what a motto we've said for ourselves. Try to do good for everyone, especially those of the household of faith, Paul writes. And how you know how Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were pressed for the devil, for God was with him. As we go about doing good, God will be with us, will he not? Because this is what God is trying to manifest so patiently and so lovingly. You remember John writes a comparative idea here at the end of his gospel here? You have uh, chapter 20, verse 30, 31. You recognize we only have a tiny record of all that Jesus did. And John uh, has a figurative idea here. Uh, he says, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. And then he declares that if, if, if everything that Jesus did had been written, uh, even the world would not hardly contain these books as he closes his gospel with. So we can form some idea of all that Jesus did. Everywhere he went, from morning to night, he was doing good and manifesting the austerity, the great dignity of our wonderful God. And here was the voice that they heard of God the Father. Here's my beloved son, hear ye him. And so he manifested the Godhead so he could say to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. What a remarkable thing this is for us to learn. And this becomes our motto, does it not? This becomes the basis of interpretation, does it not? Uh, as Jesus said, I have put God on exhibition. This is the idea of John 1.18. The verb here means to, to exhibit, uh, to uh, put in view. Uh, to make manifest uh, Jesus. No one has seen God at any time, but God, but Jesus has explained him, has exegeted him, or, or put him on demonstration. So we can look at the life of Jesus up and down and back and forth and understand what God the Father is like. What a remarkable statement this would be. And so we have this great manifestation, do we not? And whoever spoke like he did, even at Nazareth, they had to say they never heard anything like this, and yet they couldn't tolerate it because of its penetration. We saw that even the soldiers were amazed as they were sent to take Jesus. 
and is said that no one ever spoke like this. So we see the great manifestation of awe and dignity from our precious Savior doing not. We have the many, many miracles that uh, he performed, and this was a testimony of his true deity, was it not? Uh, he says in John chapter 5, 36 and 37, that God the Father was giving him these miracles uh, to prove his ministry and to prove his mission. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. And so these were the many evidences of God's precious oversight of Jesus. We talked about some of these miracles over nature when the waves were quenched and, and over demons as they were cast out. And, and uh, here we have the great miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. And we just think of the amazement here and probably the great manifestation was his resurrection. Here is uh, Thomas who, who just couldn't uh, be persuaded of this matter until he saw the Lord Jesus here. And uh, then he said, as in John 20, uh, 28, Jesus said, uh, have your evidence here now. Uh, look at the wounds that you saw were made. And then uh, he said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, uh, uh, you have seen and therefore you believe. Blessed are those who did not see and yet have believed. And this takes us into account, does it not? And we praise his blessed name for all of this. And on top of all of this, Pilate insisted on a sign uh, over the sacred cross. This is the king of the Jews and so on in the full declaration. So here was a declaration of what Jesus really claim to be and can we imagine the impact of this whole life of Jesus we said that this had to be a greatly publicized matter because God is seeking to reach the world it can't be something done in a small portion of the world without the world's consciousness and so truly uh, God has brought this about hasn't he uh, we have this story of the two disciples walking to Emmaus they're after the crucifixion, and they're so discouraged, aren't they, in the 24th of Luke. And the Jesus joins himself to them, but he veils his identity so they can't recognize him. And uh, he walks along with them, and he says, Why are you so sad here? Oh, have you been here and you don't know? Is this possible that you don't know the terrible things that have happened? And this would indicate the publicity that was given to this most solemn occasion, would it not? And then Jesus walks along with them and answers their questions and so on. And then, he, and then he allows himself to be recognized. The veil is lifted and they recognize him. And then he vanishes. And oh, weren't they excited as they thought back over his lovely visit with them. And isn't verse 32 a lovely expression? Were, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Isn't it wonderful as Christians we can have this burning within our hearts day by day? We can read scriptures for 50 years, it seems, and all of a sudden a new light from God comes to us and, and we feel a blessed presence of the living God. And we know the scripture is the word of God because of what the Holy Spirit does with it. And so they were to be witnesses throughout the whole world 
of this great event. As Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, even to the uttermost remote part of the earth. And so here was a great publicity going to be brought to pass. And the book of Acts indicates this great publicity throughout the world. We have Paul making a summary statement here of the publicity. Acts 26, 26 here. Uh, Paul is talking uh, to this ruler here. And uh, he declares that this was not done in a secret place. He said, but Paul said, verse 25, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth, for the king knows that these matter about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. It's not something segregated that people wouldn't know about, and so God is trying to reach the world. It would have to be a world publicity, wouldn't it? And we're so thankful for this wonderful declaration of the universal love of God. We don't need to have these technical problems. We don't need to have these, these dreadful things that settle down over our minds, the great question mark of theology that has been such a darkening of the zeal of earnest Christians and has quenched the fires of so many earnest hearts as they came to serve the Lord and receive these utter complications and <laughs> wrestle with them. We have it stated that the precious sweet gospel has been made for everybody without any theological reservations whatsoever. And what a precious thing to see the universal love of God wanting every single person to find this happy reconciliation. I mentioned, bless the Lord, when I put my feet on this about 43 years ago and got delivered from all my theological speculations that affected me so deeply, it became a liberation to my mind. Praise the name of the Lord. Then I began to seek what the meaning of the atonement would be. And uh, this results is what God has seemed to lead in my own thinking with such beautiful satisfaction from the heart of God. How sweet to think of Jesus coming into the world, not to condemn the world, John 3, 17, but that the world through him might be saved. This is God's desire. The Bible's a rescue operation, we have said, uh, trying to reach out for every single person that can be persuaded to, to take time to think things over. And so the commission was to go into all the world, wasn't it? As we have in the end of Mark's gospel, for example. And God is not sending us out into the whole world without having provided a gospel for the whole world, of course. So we read in verse 15 of 16th chapter, don't we? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. God is telling us to do this because he's provided a salvation for everyone with nothing mysterious back of it. Oh, bless the Lord for his great love. And he who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. He who has disbelieved, again we say, that unbelief is anti-belief. It's easy to be a believer. You have to work at it if you're going to be an unbeliever. To be an unbeliever, you have to refuse the evidence of being a believer, don't you? And so we have this beautiful commission, which, of course, God has provided for. And Peter learned this, didn't he? At the household of Cornelius, you have uh, Acts chapter 10 here. Uh, this was a great directive that Peter got, and we'll be talking about this in a few lectures. 
And he learns as he comes to Cornelius' household. He says in Acts 10, 34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. He does not prefer one above the other. In other words, Peter is saying, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Anyone who's willing to open the mind and heart is welcome to the heart of God without any technicalities back of the whole matter. And though we have the sweet desire in the part of God to forgive, Romans 2.11 we talked about, God is no respecter of persons. Again, God does not prefer one above the other. Our key passage in the whole study of, doc of theology and doctrine has been that beautiful passage in 1 Timothy 2.4. Uh, here we have the, the lovely statement of, of uh, a reality of salvation, a coming to the knowledge of the truth. And we mentioned that this is the beautiful, comprehensive knowledge that God wants us to have. A, a full knowledge of experience is the idea here. Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of truth. Because he's provided a salvation for all men. Then we go on, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony born at the proper time. Great declarations of God's universal provision. Uh, uh, Hebrews 2.9 talks about tasting death for every man. Oh, how deep is that word taste. As he partook, he offered up himself. He didn't transfer the sin to an animal, did he? He transferred the sin of the world to himself and became the sacrifice himself. And so we read, he had received a body a little while lower than the angels because of the suffering of death, so he could perform the great finality of the atonement. But now he's crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And this is the beautiful love of God, isn't it? We have in 1 John 2, 2, the deepest word for reconciliation and atonement. And we have John stating that the, this was made for everyone. Verse 2, chapter 2, He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And so God is going to do for everyone uh, the same, isn't he? We don't need to have any theological reservations. Oh, my. In my early ministry, I was never sure that the person I was talking to uh, was, was involved in the atonement. I was never sure that the sins of the person I'm talking to were literally paid for because under no consideration, of course, can you conceive of a literal payment of debt and a universal salvation. It's impossible. Everybody be saved if there's a literal payment, of course. And so as we've suggested, the starting point is to see for whom Christ died. And he died for the whole world. And since everybody's not being saved, obviously he didn't pay for anyone's sin, literally. He substituted his debt uh, to... Guarantee the problems in their solution to justify God in the exercise of mercy. And so we see the great development. Oh, how sweet to put our feet upon this solid rock. This would happen in northwestern Europe here in the beginning of the 1600s and previous to this too. Uh, we have to study kind of and observe between the lines of the many earnest Christian groups in persecution in the mountains here of France and, and different parts of, of Europe in great persecution. And they affirm the general atonement of Jesus and 
without any limitations. And the only way to be saved, of course, was to allow yourself to think about this matter and have a humiliation before the lovely Savior. And the simplicity of their doctrinal statements is so serene to consider. And how precious and merciful God is seeking to be. Now God has to have something simple, doesn't he? He can't have, compli he can't have theological complications for salvation. He has to have something simple. And Jesus had such a sweet prayer, didn't he? In, in, in Luke 10, 21, he looks up into the face of God the Father. And he thanks God for the simplicity of the whole matter of salvation. And he, he thanks God that God has withheld these things from the wise and the prudent, he said, and has revealed them unto babes. And he said, I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and the intelligent, and didst reveal them unto babes. Those of us who are willing to be humble before the great God, and who can think of God without being humbled? And so we say that pride must be ignorance of the reality of the great being of God, mustn't it? As soon as we open our eyes to reality, only one position results, humility. And anyone who is willing to be humble, Jesus said, shall know the truth and shall find the rest with the Lord. So there was a simplicity. John talks about this simplicity, doesn't he, in John 1, 12? As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Even those who believe in his name receive him for all that he did and all he claimed to be, of course. And Jesus said, if any man will do his will, in John 7, 17, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God. He'll have the evidence, in other words, that Jesus is speaking the truth of God. Evidence in his own heart and life. And so here was the simplicity. And Jesus went out and declared the simplicity, didn't he? Mark chapter 1, we have Jesus beginning his ministry here. And he's declaring the simplicity of relationship. Verse 14, here Jesus goes into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. He said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. How do you enter it? Sit down and think things over. Allow your eyes to see things in proper perspective. Recognize the dimensions of God in our smallness. Uh, recognize what we've done against God. Have a rethinking of our life. He said the thing to have to do is to repent and believe the gospel. To believe is to make a commitment of our whole selves, of course. And Paul has this same uh, declaration given to him, uh, what he's to spend his time with, as in Acts 20, 21. Uh, he is to proclaim repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't he? And he calls this... The gospel of the grace of God, isn't that remarkable? People say grace doesn't require repentance. Well, Paul didn't know that. He says the gospel of the grace of God is repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. We have all kinds of complications over the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and so on. So Paul simplifies the whole matter. He says, when I go out and preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, I'm preaching the gospel, the grace of God, and the way this is entered into a rethinking process and a change of views, and then a commitment to Jesus. So everything becomes lovely and simple, does it not? 
We don't need to write big books of all kinds of complications and students come up on the scene and try to wade through all these complications and try to all these distinctions of mind and build up all a, a matter of wordage and they think they can go out with all this wordage and win souls to Christ, of course, it'll not be. And so here's the simplicity and then we are to continue in this happy relationship of faith. We'll talk about that later in the week. We might just read a key passage from Paul's later writings, Colossians chapter 1. Here's what God wants to do for us, is it not? Verse 21, you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Yet he's now reconciled you in this fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven notice the extensiveness of the gospel in apostolic times of which i paul was made a minister so notice we have three conditions in the new testament for final salvation i have no re no understanding how these could be avoided there has to be the rethinking process there has to be the total commitment to the savior and then when we're so happy in the Lord, of course, we are expected to continue in the love of God. So Jude writes, keep yourselves in the love of God. And this is the basic thing we have to do in our Christian life, isn't it? So we see some remarkable simplicities. Now we must sum up very briefly uh, some of the solutions to the problems we saw. We said there was a requirement in moral government, did we not? The sin prevention problem. And so something has to be done to demonstrate before all mankind that God is not going to compromise his pronouncements. God has said the soul that's in it, it shall die. When, when God forgives, he repents, and the soul that's sin is not going to die because here is forgiveness. And God has to substitute some terrifying measure that shall evaluate how God feels concerning this whole matter. And this has to be a public matter, as we mentioned there. A little statement in your notes there. So we have the, the thought of public justice. We don't hear much about this nowadays. But this is a very common discussion. The public justice, we say, is a manifestation of due punishment in the presence of society. So whole society has to appreciate uh, the, the consequence of sin and realize what's going to happen if they revolt against God that uh, sin cannot be indulged in and, and crime against society cannot be indulged in without consequences. So there have to be some kind of consequences in a moral government. And so God has brought the dreadful consequence that we've talked about. And there's two areas of impression that has to be made, is there not? There has to be impression upon the mass of the ungodly, we say. And they have to see that God is not going to be careless of what he said. And if they can learn that God would go to all this measure, this unthinkable humiliation and exertion of the inner experiences of the Godhead, that sin must be so terrifying in his mind that he's not going to bypass what he has said. And so the ungodly have a, have a recognition that if God would go to all of this, it must be that he's not thinking lightly of his pronouncements and is going to fulfill what he said. Then we Christians need a great uh, barrier, do we not? And it seems like this barrier 
is so absent in our day in Christian circles. In other words, we need to appreciate what Jesus did for us to keep us in a state of sensitivity so we don't take advantage of God. And it must be that the gospel is not represented as it should be in our day. The people are not required to sit down and think things over, are they? You have these five-minute proposals. You have repeating prayer. Let's never ask anybody to repeat any kind of prayer after us. When the Spirit of God is given an opportunity in their lives to open the truth of God, they'll pray, they'll seek God. It's our part to work with them until the truth of God becomes real to them. Let's never ask anybody to pray after us. Salvation has to be far deeper than this, does it not? And if the soul is not lost in the presence of the Lord, there never will be salvation, of course. So here we have Andrew bringing Peter to Jesus. And when Peter meets Jesus, he doesn't need Andrew anymore. And so as we work with souls and we see they're in divine consciousness, then we've rather fulfilled what God sent us to do. And God will take care of them when they get in a state of recognition of God's great reality, will they not? You have the question coming up in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God's been so good to us, shall we continue relaxed and not uh, live carefully and, and affectionately? And then Paul, can't see Paul rising up with indignation. He said, may it never be. How shall we who did die to sin live any longer therein? How shall we who were given to experience something of the sacrificial, sacrificial death of Jesus continue in sin any longer? We have the most astonishing scriptures, do we not, in this area? And of course, we Christians need to realize what it cost God to forgive us, it's not a light matter, and we can't go back in our former ways and think lightly of, uh, of the consequences. We have such a passage in 1 John 3, 6, no one who abides in him is sinning. No one who is sinning, these are present tenses, has seen him or known him. So if we continue in sin, it's evidence we've never met Jesus. And so we need these great impressions, do we not? Uh, to, to see the, the solemnness as to what God has done for us, and uh, so on. In the four or so books on the atonement written 125, 150 years ago, there's an interesting story of a group of people known as the Crocretians. Uh, I believe this was an ancient people in southern Italy somewhere, and they had a ruler by the name of Zeleucus. And uh, this ruler had great regard for homes again and family circle. And uh, he said that anyone who is guilty of adultery shall both of his eyes plucked out. Here was a dreadful, serious realization of the benefit of keeping homes together. And so here was the pronouncement, a very serious one. And this was to prevent the destruction of homes. Who should be found, the story goes, but his own son. Now here is a dreadful conflict going in in the father's mind. Evidently he's a loving ruler, wants to benefit his, his society. He knows more than we do in our so-called elevated society. He knows if he, uh, if he cancels the consequences, he eliminates the government. He eliminates the effectiveness of his rules. They'll mean nothing unless there's a fulfillment of consequence. And yet here comes his compassionate love for his son. What's he gonna do? Uh, to, is there any solution? Is there any compromise? that he can make in this situation. And the story goes with great solemnness in the presence of the whole multitude. He has one of his own eyes plucked out. Then he has one of his son's eyes plucked out. 
Here is a substituted measure. The first thing we observe is the consequences of the law have not been fulfilled. Here's a substituted measure that's supposed to perform the result at least as effectively as the literal pronouncement of the consequences would have done. And we can see how this would be the case. As they would see the ruler who thinks so much of his law, so much of the good of his society, that he's willing to go through life with this great dreadful impairment. It must mean he really loves us with a depth of exhaustion and depth of self-sacrifice. And yet there was a manifestation of mercy. And so they, they would say, well, now our ruler is not technical, is he? He's also merciful. So we can see the impact of this being exceedingly great, greater than the literal fulfillment. There was a great attraction then to see the, their own ruler who loved them so much that he's willing to go to this exertion. And this is held in several books, as I said, as a great example of the atonement. The atonement was a substituted measure. Didn't pay for anybody's sins, literally. There's no names involved in atonement at all. It is made for the whole world of mankind without any identity, without any concept of anybody's sins being paid for. Here was the problem that had to be solved. Different illustrations are given us in the scripture. And we are not to get too technical in these illustrations. God is trying to teach us some basic ideas in the different illustrations of scriptures, like we've said. And we're to look for some basic main idea that God's trying to tell us. And so God said, if there's going to be any salvation, there has to be this great measure. And, and if Jesus wouldn't come and do this, there couldn't be any salvation. So by his coming, his advent, and all of this, he brought this wonderful thing to a possible, didn't he? And so God is certainly has protected his sacred government, hasn't he? We said there was the problem of the personality manifestation of God. If God and man are going to know each other, there has to be some unthinkable manifestation because our concepts of God are totally and absolutely defective. And how can God ever exert his mercy and his kindness except there is some kind of a profound revelation. And my, how we need to take this to heart in our proclaiming of the gospel. And many people going out and proclaiming the gospel as some simply emotional thing without a necessity of pondering the situation. They pity people for living in sin and so on because they can't help it. And God is trying to be merciful and emotional without laying down any principles. Now Jesus came to lay down some principles, did he not? And so we have to have a revelation of the character of God if there's going to be any reconciliation. And so we say what Jesus came to do, first of all, to show that God was kind and good. He did this by his whole life and ministry, didn't he? When everywhere doing good. They're trying to manifest the kindness of God. And uh, Jesus said so many beautiful things along his line, didn't he? He talked about the parable of the, of the person to whom two had indebtedness. And this ruler is moved with compassion and forgives them. And so Jesus represents God the Father as moved with compassion and wanting to forgive. Paul writes about this in Romans 5, 8. God is commending his love toward us. So Jesus had to show that God was still loving no matter how he's been treated. But he also had to say that God just can't be emotional. He just can't reconcile anybody to himself. Let's really think things through. My, we don't need a resurrection of intelligence in our day. 
this is not a matter of lowering the organ and turning down the lights. This is a matter of thoughtfulness. Analyzing our whole lives. We've been completely wrong. This is what Jesus came to do. There could be no salvation to anyone who didn't sit down and think things over. Now we think there can be. Just got a real emotional on the street corner, talk to anybody for a few minutes, get them to repeat some prayer after you, write their names, give them some follow-up literature. It's supposed to be salvation. This, of course, is not New Testament. It takes time to win souls. It takes energy to win souls. It takes exhaustion to win souls. It's not this easy process that many seem to be involved in. And so Jesus came and poured out his heart, poured out his mind, struggled. He picked every imaginary illustration he could think about, trying to teach us spiritual things in terms of what we know. He talked about the soils, didn't he? And the different, the four kinds of soils here, and the seed God's trying to sow. And the result depends upon the reaction, doesn't he? And so if on one thing or other, he tries to teach them, then he sits down in the great Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? And we have a key passage in this matter at verse five, chapter 5, verse 20 of Matthew. He says, unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter into the kingdom of God. Oh, what an analytical passage. You know how rigorous uh, the religious leaders were in their external calculations, in their tithing, in their tiny details of external life. But Jesus said, unless it enters into your heart, no matter what you do, by way of outside calculation, has no meaning. If I can't get into your heart to the very bottom, I can't have, you can't have me. And so he has to explain what the principle of reconciliation is, and that God is a righteous God, God's an intelligent God. You can't take an intelligence and mix with unintelligence. You can't take truth and mix with those who want to be me first, living our own little lives. And so Jesus had to show there has to be a righteousness involved if man is going to be reconciled to God. And my, how much he had to say about this and how much the, the different uh, writers had to say about this. He prays in 1725 of John, O righteous Father, and so we need to see that God has principles. He has rules. They're intelligent rules. He's a loving moral governor. But there can't be any kind of reconciliation except we agree with God in his principles of truth. And just think of the indignancy also Jesus had to show that all God, God is patient and allows people. Here we are making our own rules. Here we are filling our newspapers with corruptible things you never imagined. They never print anything like that. 25 years ago, there'd be a public revolt if they were printing things like that. And now our society is sinking deeper and deeper in the abyss of imagination. And because God doesn't eliminate us, they assume he's, he doesn't affect it. So Jesus came upon the earth and became the most angry man that's ever walked the earth, to be sure. One time he conceived of the terrible treatment the temple was having. And he got so angry, he drove them out of the temple. And, and he was the most angry man that's ever walked the temple. But they knew he was right. And they were afraid of him. Because here was righteous anger, not selfish anger like we've been involved in so much. But here is righteous anger. And here was a technicality of healing on the Sabbath, for example. A man with a withered hand here. And they're watching, is he going to dare to heal on the Sabbath? And he said, Jesus said, isn't it all right to do good on the Sabbath? And they're going to watch. And then he looks around about them with indignation. As you have in Mark at chapter 3, 5, and 6. What kind of look do you suppose that was? And then he says to the man, stretch out your hand. It's good to do right. It's good to be beneficial and loving on the Sabbath. 
here with their technicalities. You see, he's manifesting the reality of his life, is he not? And so man needed a complete picture of God, not some little kind of an emotional thing. God is burning with love and desire to fill our hearts with bounties, we'll talk about, with great blessing in a few lectures here. But we can't, God can't do this unless we're willing to awaken to truth and be intelligent about the whole matter. And this is what Jesus had to portray. If you're going to be reconciled to God, we have to know God. And so this is our great business, isn't it, to represent God as he is. And we have some sweet statements about the love of God and the mercies of God and the fear of God that's necessary, respect and reverence before God. And Peter talks about this in summary, doesn't he? First Peter 1, 17, he said, If you call on the Father who, has, who judges impartially according to every man's work, conduct yourselves in fear or reverence during the time of your stay upon earth. So man needed a full picture of God, didn't he? If he's going to be reconciled to God. Isn't it beautiful? God's given us this picture. Is there anything more lovely, friends, than being conquered by the love of Jesus? Paul says, I'm reduced to slavery. And this is a climactic verb here. When the Holy Spirit made real the life of Jesus and his sacred atonement and that sacred, pure, benevolent love coming from his sacrificial deaths. Paul says, I'm a slave. Big chains have been put around me. He goes out in his prison and he says, I wish you were all like me except these chains. He says, I'm a slave of Jesus. Friends, is there anything like this in the whole world experience? Isn't this something different than being a slave of little old stupid gratifications of all kinds? Praise the Lord. Slave of truth. Slave of Jesus. His love burning within our hearts. Go back in history. See all the martyrs. See all the, those who lovingly gave their life for Jesus. Thought it was an easy thing, a privilege to give their little lives for Jesus because they were reduced to slavery. John says, 1 John 4, 19, we are loving, he said. Why? Because we're slaves. We met Jesus and experienced his love. We can't experience this, of course, except we're going to be willing to live where Jesus lives. And he is a total open personality, isn't he? And so we need to have the whole picture before the world if they're going to experience God's wonderful thing. Very briefly, there was the problem of humiliation, was there not? And we just can't untie ourselves. We have so deceived ourselves, we can't decide to be humble. So when a person says, I'm humble, it doesn't mean anything. And if we think we're humble, we're probably not. And so some kind of a great measure has to happen to humble us, does it not? There has to be a preparatory. And this is God's single problem, as I see it, to get us down where he can bless us. And somebody, there's always got to be a recognition of God's supremacy. We have in Hebrews 12, 9, do we not? Shall we not much rather be in subject to the Father of spirits and live? So there has to be a subjection, does there not? It's a very solemn thing that every single person is going to bow the knee somewhere to God. We read that in Philippians 2, 10, did we not? And it's the wonderful thing of forgiveness that when God forgives us, we're not coming into the judgment. Somewhere we've got to have a judgment, don't we? Are we supposed to get into heaven without realizing our selfishness and our guilt? Of course not. That can't be. And so somewhere there's got to be a humiliation. And whatever does this except Jesus. And we see his love draws it down. Jesus never pushed anybody down, did he? He always got so low that they were embarrassed to be way up here so they wanted to get down where he was. 
And so it's the sweetness of Jesus that humbles us and simmers down our pride, doesn't it? Till dear Jesus is the bottom. He says, I'm the least in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, what a precious thing our Savior was. It's only his humble love that ever puts us down where we belong, to be sure. And if it wasn't for this sweet love, we never would get down where we belong. And how wonderful to get down before the Savior and look up into his face like Peter did in the washing of the feet. Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet, Lord. That's not right. How do you suppose Jesus looked at Peter? You couldn't describe this look, could you? And Peter is defeated. He says, Lord, Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you don't part with me. Oh, Lord, you won. He's down before Peter, isn't he? I want to get down where you are, Jesus. Wash not only my feet, but my hands and my head. So it's the sacred atonement that humbles us, brings us down where God can bless us. And God doesn't delight in our humiliation. We're so glad of that. And God forgives us, I believe, as soon as he sees a reality of sincerity in our hearts. Yeah, this is the beauty of the love of God. Then we said there had to be the transformation. We said that this was a part in which we shared activity, not some little automatic thing some way, but a willingness to go with the Holy Spirit to the means of transformation. And we have the beautiful account of the gift of the Holy Spirit here in the 15th of Acts, the first Jerusalem conference here, and they're discussing the final gift of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles. And notice what God wants to do here, but there has to be a purification first. And so Peter rises up to declare the summary, uh, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing or purifying their hearts by faith. Here we have Acts 15, 8 and 9. And this is what God wants to do. He wants to purify us so he can be admitted to live with us, doesn't he? And there's nothing that can ever do a thing like this. And here is the magic. We don't like this word exactly. But when we come to Jesus and the Holy Spirit makes real the life and sufferings and love of Jesus, it does something to us. Here is the thing that Paul talked about, isn't it, in 1 Corinthians 1.18. He said, here the preaching of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, he said, but unto us who are being saved here, a present beautiful tense, it is the power of God. And so he's reduced to slavery, isn't he? He talks about this also in Romans chapter 1, doesn't he? Verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And so here we have a remarkable center of healing, a remarkable center of complete transformation, of purification of our hearts and minds. This is a miraculous thing. You can't just put it in words, can you? But we experience it when we come and put ourselves down at the feet of Jesus and something happens, bless the Lord, as we look up into the face of Jesus, there's a magic flow that comes. Like Jesus said, if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men unto me. And he says, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And as they looked to the servant in the wilderness, something happened, didn't it? And Jesus said, if you look to me, something will happen. 
There'll be a purification of your heart. There'll be a setting in order of our imaginations. There'll be a new thought process. We don't want the old. There'll be a new emotional outlet. And here comes a drawing of our emotions in the serenity of God. And the new emotions are so wonderful, and they're not to be compared with all the old subordinate emotions which had a bad aftertaste, because the new emotions always have a better aftertaste, an unending aftertaste in God's mercy. Oh, truly, we must say, God solved the great problems through this great adventure. And now Jesus could say in the parable, Come, for all things are now ready.